The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. Well, welcome to Convergence. I'm glad you're here. My name is John, director of Convergence, and uh, I'm glad you made it out, especially if you're new. Please come up and say hi. I would love to meet you. Uh, I'd love to introduce myself. I know it's a big deal to, to find your way here. I mean, this, I, when I first came here five years ago, I couldn't find the bathroom. That's not an exaggeration. I really couldn't. It, we kind of have grown over the years, and, and this can be a confusing place. But I'm, I'm glad you made it. I'm glad you're here. Um, we're digging into a, a, a heavy book, Book of Revelation, but it's a, it's a book full of uh, good things for us. Um, before I even met some of you, let me, just, let me just start off and just be a little presumptuous, if I could. I think I know three things about every person in this room. And, you know, you can test them for yourself, and maybe I'll get two out of three. But I'm going to start. I'm going to go bold and go big. Three things. One, I think that you're motivated. Uh, one of your main motivations, one of your main goals, one of your main desires that drives a lot of the money that you spend and the, and the time that you exert is around this idea of being known and getting to know somebody else. That there is something about all of us, So something about that is just human, about wanting to be known. It's not enough just to get stuff done, to accomplish something, to cover our basic needs, enough to eat, enough to drink. We want to be known deeply. That's true, That's true of all generations. It's true all around the world. Here's my second thing. The second thing is, I'm pretty sure that when you, if you were to start to think beyond just kind of a general desire about wanting to be known, that, that it, one of, if you were to think, okay, when have I seen that? When have I experienced that? When has that been kind of the, those pinnacle moments that I look to or, or when I think about it, if I were to take some time and think about really being known, that it probably involves a table, maybe some food. That there's something even around the world, we, you know, we do it differently. Different cultures kind of engage and connect differently. And yet probably the common factor is that there's probably a table. If you think of those kind of prime images, those, that highlight reel for you of, in your life, it, one of them probably has to do with the table. If you were to think, okay, what would it be like to feel like I was really known? And that, and that I knew someone. That, that, that you might think about a table and, um, and you're in a place, and it's a place that feels comfortable to you, it's a place that you can um, imagine a number of people uh, around the table. There's probably something really good that you like. For some of you, tater tots. That's cool, right? There's something kind of some kind of good food. There's some kind of something that you really like to to drink. And and probably the way it goes is that it just it walks in and it, you walk in and you feel comfortable. And probably you know there's a lot of laughter if you were to continue to think about it. You know, you're laughing and you're joking and, and maybe you're, you're, you're giving toasts, enjoying good food. There's a sense that, you know, you can kind of, there's all these inside jokes. Like if somebody, if somebody kind of that you didn't know walked in, they wouldn't get really what you're talking about. Because you're, you're drawing on common memories and there's just a sense that you're, you're laughing at how big of idiots you were. And, and at the same time, like things that have been awesome, amazing things that you've seen. There's a lot of laughter and... But if you were to keep thinking, probably what would happen around that table is that you could imagine at some moment somebody would probably say something that isn't funny. Something that's probably a bit of a buzzkill because it's either awkward or it's sad. 
um, or it's more vulnerable than we're used to. And probably around the table as you're sitting there, and you would imagine, what is it like to be really known? There's probably that sense where you could sense, oh, that, that is awkward. And I don't want to deal with that. That's uncomfortable. And yet at the same time, right next to that is the sense of it's okay. Because the people around this table can handle that conversation. That there is something that happens around this table that perhaps could give hope to whatever was articulated. That's number two. Number three, here's, here's, my, last, here's my last guess of what um, I think I know about you. Number three is that you are pain, I am pain, we're all pain, an incredibly high price for some of the, the things that we love dearest, some of the benefits that we enjoy. And mostly, that price is paid in this whole area of being known. That, that as we think about the world that we live in today, we have more opportunity, more chances for mobility, more freedom from social convention, um, the, the ability to kind of do whatever we want in ways that our parents were kind of, they're kind of put into sort of in, into a lane and they couldn't really bump out of that, at least not without real, real difficulty. I know that in my own family for Shannon, it was a big deal for Shannon's mom to leave Nebraska. In fact, kind of strain the family for a while because, man, you take over the family farm. What do you mean you're going to move out to Seattle? We don't even think about that. We go wherever we want to go and there's incredible opportunity with that. And yet with that has come a sense in which if we were to, to think about people around a table, we're, we might wonder if anybody knows me. Because there might be a lot, there might, some of us have some faces, some, some distinct faces that would be around there. For some of us, it might be sort of a shadowy figure. We might actually see empty seats. One of the things we read, and, and I know I experience, and I'm guessing that you experience too, is that while we have more opportunities to connect, and that's awesome, more opportunities to move around, more opportunities to do what we want and to move where we want to go, there is this disturbing trend that we're also one of the loneliest generations that have been recorded. And when you ask people, you know, stand, you know, kind of standards of life tends to be incredibly lonely. And, and I know that I've experienced some of that, that as I've moved and I've gotten to do amazing things, that's how I'm even in Seattle. It, there, when I first came up here, it took me probably a year um, of being really, really alone in a crowd before I finally had some people who knew me, and I started to connect. Well, as we're looking at this book of Revelation, this, is, this question is one that is John's asking, but it pushes it a little bit, because we don't just want to be known by others around us. There's also a sense in which we want to be known by God, or something greater. Some of us wouldn't want to uh, kind of put articulate it that kind of we wouldn't want to define it that much. But I'm guessing most people have a sense of wanting to connect their 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 lives to something bigger than themselves, and so it could be general spirituality or or or, or kind of a, a movement that they sense that's happening in culture and in history. For us who would call ourselves Christians, we would say that we actually can put a name to that, that it is God. And, and specifically, Scripture reveals that it is Jesus Christ. And yet, we live in an environment where probably we would ask, um, where is Jesus? Just like for some of us, we might ask, who actually knows me? If I got real honest. We might also say, where is Jesus in the midst of the stuff that I sit in, the life that I lead? See, John... 
this book of Revelation, it's a, it's a crazy book, but he's wrestling with some very similar things. And so last week, we did like an overview of that. We went real quickly. I want to I go back into chapter 1, and, and I want to take a little more time. I want to read through the text, because it'll set us up for what we we're going to talk about tonight. So beginning in, in um, verse 9, we read that I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. See, John is in prison. He has been, he has been essentially exiled. And he is thinking, at least on his heart, he has to have been praying for churches that he knew in an area of Asia Minor or Turkey. Seven churches in particular that, that, he, that he names. See, they were under incredible pressure. They were living in a world that felt uh, insecure, felt like it was constantly changing in, in a lot of ways. It was a world that was dominated in particular by the propaganda machine of the Roman Empire. One that kind of was a big deal. It was a big, it was a big deal to begin with because you would see everywhere, you would see images of, of Rome and its power and, and its dominance and, and everything from, from coins. I think, actually, we have some images of that. Um, if we can bring that up. Wherever you went, you would see statues of emperors, symbols that would let you know that, that Rome is in charge. That, that, that Rome is who you need to trust because Rome will lead you into the life that you love. And so everywhere you go, you see it, symbols, you see it on coins. But it actually had gotten ramped up even more, especially under this emperor named Domitian. Now Domitian, he came in, he was a young emperor. But more than that, he actually had no battle experience. So it's not like he was kind of could leverage the good old days when he was out on the battlefield. He was young and he had no military experience, which led to him being incredibly insecure. Which led to him into some funky places. One of which was, was to kind of reinstall this cult called the Imperial Cult. It was emperor worship. So it wasn't just enough for him to be called the emperor. What he wanted actually was for people to acknowledge him as God. And so he started asking for kind of some funky things, some outrageous titles. And you can see at the top there, there's, that's a relief from a, probably about 100 years later. But it, it captures this idea of the, the emperors kind of ascending out of human existence into the divine. And so he actually said, don't just, I don't want you to just call me emperor. I want you to call me Lord and God. That some of the emperors would actually want people to refer to them as savior of the world. That, that, that there was a whole cult that was built around it. So you see the picture there. That's actually of Ephesus. It was actually a whole temple that was dedicated to the religious worship of the emperors, which Domitian in particular said, look, I want, you, I, I, wanna, I want you to kind of prove your loyalty to me. So I want you to go through this religious ritual. I want you to throw in a pinch of incense into fire and declare that Caesar is Lord. In 92, he had 40,000 Christians killed because he brought back um, this sense that there was something really dangerous in this group of people who followed Jesus. And you start to get... If you pull back a little bit, you start to get this sense that he's kind of like that insecure girlfriend or boyfriend that is constantly wanting you to prove that you love him, right? Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. 
Are you sure? You haven't bought me anything recently. Yes, come on, right? There's a sense that just tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me more. Well, this is the environment that Christians are living in. It's one that dominated their life. They were in the midst of a war that was being raged. Not waged, not in a, in particularly like in a battle of ideas. Let's rationally kind of think, what, you know, what's the best, what's the best kind of, uh, what's offered here in this idea? And what's offered here in this idea? And let's, let's, let's look at them. Let's kind of evaluate them. No, it was a war that was being waged that was, uh, an all out battle, tooth and nail. It was a war that was being fought in the imagination, in the dreams, in the emotions of culture about what really matters, who's in charge, what's even possible, and what the good life is. Well, Revelation enters right into this discussion and speaks the very same language. It's one of the reasons why this book is often misunderstood or difficult for us to get, because we're trying to make it say something that it isn't in ways that it doesn't. And all the while, we actually miss what it has to say to us that is incredibly relevant and, and incredibly powerful. So we go on. If we feel like everything's been kind of is okay, now it starts getting weird. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, and he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead And now, look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death in Hades. We talked a little bit about images, and if we're going to understand Revelation, we have to understand its use of images. One of the ways that we could could maybe get our heads around it is to think about some of the images throughout Revelation as being political cartoons. right? So many of us are used to political cartoons. We've seen them for a long time. The top one, it has to do with World War I in which the U.S. feels constrained, right? Constrained. So this idea of political cartoons, they, they can be funny, but they also can be incredibly powerful. Just because they're funny or grotesque or, or, or weird or strange doesn't mean that they're not communicating something that is true, something that is powerful, or something that is relevant. Political cartoons really act kind of like a shorthand for us while also describing something that might be hard to to get our heads around. It makes sense for us because we know the context that they come out of. We, We can identify with the images that we use. So we don't have to explain what a donkey and an elephant is. We we don't wonder if they're talking about actual donkeys throwing cash, making it rain for the elephants, right? Eh, Well, anyways. Anyway, so we're not wondering about that, right? In the top one, we're not, we're not, wondering about a snake. It's not an actual snake that's being divided, but there's something profound that was being said at the, at the very start of our nation about what happens if we get separated apart. When we, can maybe under, political cartoons can help us sort of understand maybe what also makes Revelation difficult, which is that we don't have the context. We can't assume the same context. That, that for the first readers, as Ron mentioned last week, the first readers would have totally understood what Revelation said. They might not have liked it, but they would have gotten it. 
So for us, it's a li- it makes it a little more difficult, but certainly not impossible. So one of the things, we, we looked over this, this image of Jesus, and I thought, well, you know, what, what could be a way for us to kind of get our heads around? Because we need to sort of begin to imagine what is it that John was, was doing here? How, how, what was the shorthand that he was trying to describe? Because he wanted us to get an image of Jesus. One of the challenges that I talked about last week is for us to think about together, what is our image? Because every single one of us has an image. And it's an image that is defining what our faith looks like or, or lack of faith. It's informed by all kinds of people around us, by our own experiences, and by Scripture. Sometimes not very much by Scripture. And so the challenge is for us to think, how is our image? Could it, maybe it needs to be challenged, changed, encouraged. How can Scripture inform that? Well, John does that. It's one of the things that we're going to hit again and again at these images of Jesus. So I thought, well, modern equivalent. Everyone knows about a profile. So I thought I'd make a profile for you know, Jesus Christ, Son of God. Right? There's a sense of this is what John is doing, is he's trying to, to kind of describe who this person is. And so as we go through what we just read, you know, he throws a title. One of the great, the Son of Man was like one of the great, it's a title of great power and prestige. It's kind of like saying, Jesus Christ, masters of the, master of the universe. Hi, how are you? Right? It, this title, Son of Man, was the most important title that someone could have in the, in the ancient world, in the ancient world. We see that he has a uniform, and uniforms tell us something about the work. It's a a uniform of a priest and a king who has a sash around his shoulder to tell us that it's not around his waist like he's going to be working. The sash is saying, look, the work is done. You you don't got to wonder if he's going to do it. His work of priest, his king, in a sense, connect us to something bigger than ourselves. Both here, king helps us connect to something bigger priest helps us connect to God. It kind of stands in the middle. We understand something from his uniform. We understand out of the identity. We understand if you were to put descriptors under there, someone who's wise, just street wise, just when, when there just seems to be chaos and a lot of just ridiculous stuff that happens. You, you look to Jesus and he's someone who just goes, here's the path of wisdom. Here's how you navigate all this stuff. Someone who's pure in heart and motives. You don't have to wonder what he's about. Able to do what is tr- able uh, to do what is true and illuminate what is hidden, while pure to, uh, purifying away impurities. Stands on solid footing. Isn't controlled by external factors. Speaks words of beauty, peace, power that strike right to the heart of the matter. That someone who can see right into us. And by the way, he's good looking, right? Always nice in your profile. You always got to wonder on profiles out there. If someone has to say, I'm incredibly good looking, you got to wonder, really? Do you have to mention it? Or Anyways, accomplishments. What are some of his accomplishments? Uh, he beat down death, actually. It's a pretty big deal, and he holds the keys of Hades. And his heart, that we talked about last week, can be summed up in four words. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. He didn't stand in front of John when John saw this awesome vision and he hit the deck. He didn't stand and go, you know, I am a big deal and you should be on the floor. In fact, he reached down and he said, John, don't be afraid because what is true for them, what is true for us is that so much of our life is defined by our fears. And none of us will admit that. We might talk about anxieties. 
But so much of our life is, it's not just rational decisions. It's, it's at least informed, if not dominated, by these anxieties that we, we navigate. Either we're running towards something because we hope it'll alleviate fear, or we're running away from something because it makes us anxious, that, that we're sort of navigating around our fears. And, and in that, oftentimes, we can make bad decisions that are not rational, not the best move forward, not wisdom, but just because we're anxious and we're fearful. We can say, oh, great, you know, it's, it's great that Jesus is, tells us to not be afraid, but he's way up in heaven and he's sitting on his throne and, you know, nice. But does he actually know? That's when we continue on um, with the last section of chapter 1. where We pick up, and he says, write, therefore, what you've seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw at my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To this question of, does he know me? Does he see what I'm doing? It's great for him to say, don't be afraid, but does he get it? Does he know? Does he realize what I'm up against and how hard things are? Does he even care or is he just sort of pronouncing something from on high? That question is answered with this. See, we've been told already that, that there's a particular concern that he's named uh, who the messages are to go to, particular churches known by name. But it goes beyond that because this is the only image that is explicitly explained. We could draw a lot of things and, you know, we could kind of wonder a lot of things. And yet there's, there's a sense that we cannot wonder about this thing. What is his concern? That, that the seven stars and the, me- the seven stars are the messengers or the angels to the seven churches, which are the seven lampstands that we ran into before. Over these next couple chapters that we're not going to be able to go into detail tonight, but the next two chapters, we're going, to, we're going to read explicit messages to very particular places. Very honest messages. Messages that are sometimes uncomfortably honest. Messages that call out both what is good and what is not so good. What is ugly and what is beautiful. So the question, where is Jesus? Does he, does he get it? He doesn't just get it. He just doesn't get your life that is full of uh, of victory and and beauty and accomplishment and courage and strength. But your life is also full of fear and self-delusion and selfishness and pressure and abuse and oppression and perhaps uh, injustice and and even sin, just like mine. They were this mixture of, of both. And Jesus goes, I don't just get it. I actually choose to walk in it. And to walk right into the middle of it. It's one of those things that if we begin, when we begin to think about it, it should actually make us pretty nervous. It's a f- fearful thing when you begin to realize that. And some of these letters that we're going to look at are uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to read through them. And yet I think it's the right kind of uncomfortable Perhaps the right kind of scary, because we all want to be known, but so often we want it on our own terms, without the accountability, sacrifice, and limitations that only truly being known has. You can't be truly known and not have these things. 
So, you know, we could talk about marriage. You know, we think about being known. Well, one of the things is people talk about marriage, and there's a sense of being chosen and loved, and, and there's, there's purpose that comes in that, and, and um, we love it, all everything that comes with that. Identity, security. So we love marriage until it comes to the point where we realize actually marriage is about also not being able to escape. Because not only are you going to have someone who's going to love you, but you're going to have someone close enough to where you can't put up enough walls to where they're going to go, you know what, you're also a jerk. You make, you make the decisions that undermine our marriage and actually are destroying this family. We don't like that. Same kind of thing happens in faith. You know, a lot of times we want to come to faith and of course we want good things and yet there will come a time where we'll, it's not going to be comfortable. I remember, you know, I, a couple of years ago I was overseas and taking some time away. I was in my early 20s and I remember sitting and I, I had heard some teaching in, in which I realized that the truth of my own relationship, my own connection with God was, what, was that I was paralyzed. I was paralyzed, not physically, not actually, but there was a sense of paralysis. paralysis, And it was driven by the wrong kind of fear. The the fear that says you should never stand out, don't ever risk looking stupid, don't ever care too much about God. Instead, drives my actions. Stay in this, this place that is safe, where you can always look good. And I was great at it. In fact, I'm still good at it. I can look good. I can play safe. I can sound religious. I had a great reputation in my town, and yet the truth, uh, the truth is, the thing that hit me in ways that I couldn't avoid that night was that at the very center of my heart, at the very center of my life, I was, le- I was paralyzed. And what was true was that I was someone who was paralyzed in such a way that I couldn't even get up and run, and yet I pretended that I was a marathon runner. So you talk about these areas, and you talk about being known, and eventually you're going to come to a place about where you feel like you're uncomfortably known. And yet on the other side of that is the one who reaches down to us and says, said to me, do not fear. It is my wife who have, who has seen me at moments of great embarrassment and great failure, who has said, "I love you and I believe in you." And the thing about being known on the other side of being uncomfortable and some of, sometimes the harshness that comes with it is that when somebody actually says that I love you and I'm with you, you believe them because you know you're not hiding stuff. That you're not trying to go, "Well, if they only knew this about me, they wouldn't love me." For some of us, we think when it comes to God, we go, you know what? God's grace and mercy, yeah, that's great, but He doesn't actually know this about me. That actually isn't for me. But when you begin to get stripped down in such a way that you go, man, so much of what I'm doing, I'm living a sham. And you know that God's mercy speaks into that. His grace speaks into that. Then you can begin to have a confidence that says, I know that it is real and that it is true and that it is for me. Then we become known in a way that changes our lives. You know, David and I were going to talk about, um, uh, kind of talk about Revelation 2 and 3 a little bit. And yeah, it, it seems like what we need to do is maybe just take a little bit of space um, and allow that, not put a lot more words in that. Um, what I want you to hear, though, and what I encourage you to do as you look through these chapters is to see 
this Jesus that chooses to enter in and see you for who you are. And, and um, hear the harsh edge as coming out of love. The kind of love that says, I cannot not tell you what is true about you because you matter way too much. And so you, as you read through these letters, let what needs to sit, sit because what is being said in there is that I get how hard it is. I get that you're getting pounded all the time. I'm in there with you. Uh, I get how you're trying to you're trying to believe what is true and right, but I also get the way you've lost, you've lost love. It's cold, and, and I, it can't be cold. And he goes to others, and he says, you know, listen, I, I, I know that you're hanging in there, and yet there's all kinds of compromise in which you've you swung so far to the other side that that you're justifying all kinds of stuff that I have nothing to do with. This is not you. But listen, come. I mean, there's a sense of what Carl just uh, shown us, articulated for us, that there is this constant sense of, of the porch light being on saying, I want you to come home. And here's the thing. As you go through these letters, some of the letters don't have anything good to say. One of them is this letter to Laodicea that a lot of us have heard about. It's about being hot and cold. And a lot of junk has been said about this um, letter. Being hot or cold has to do with being useful. Who we're created to be. Either your hot waters that heal or your cool waters that bring refreshment. That God has called you to himself because he has an incredible purpose and destiny for not just you individually, but for us as a community. And he says, come on, you guys. You're playing like your big shots, and yet you've totally missed it. There's not a single good word in here, and yet... Listen to this. He says, look, you say I am rich, and I have, and I have become wealthy, and I need nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's the truth, and it hurts. He goes on to say, I advise you, buy from me gold refined in the fire so you be, may become rich, and white garments so you may, be, you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You can hear him. He just dropped a word, and yet he says... He, you can hear the softness in which he's like, I'm not going to demand of you. I'm counseling you. I'm advising you. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline before. Therefore, be zealous and repent or turn around, change direction. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him and he with me. There's a lot of these images that they've almost become cliche. And so some of us have maybe seen those. And yet there is a sense of this God that has nothing but a hard word to say. And he's saying, look, I only say these things to people that I actually care about. Some of you know what it's like to have people that have said something to you that is hard. But you know that they actually do it because they, they're the first person who is willing to tell you the truth. And believe in something better for you. 
You know what Jesus says is even to the to the one person that it's the harshest. This is what gives me hope. He says, "Look, here I am. I'm knocking. I'm not going to force you. But what I want you to do is open the door so that I can come in and we can sit around the conversation, sit around the table, and that we can know one another in a way that draws you into who you're created to be. And so." I'm just going to ask Kyle if you just play for a while and let's just give us space that right now, what is it that what, as Jesus is maybe perhaps standing at the door for you and saying, look, I'm here, I'm ready. All I want you to do is invite me in. For some of us, that is to say, for the first time, I'm, I want, I actually want to follow you. For some of us, that might be to say, look, I know that I've become so religious that, um, that I've lost the love for some of you just to say, Jesus, come in because I need you to know how difficult it is right now. What I invite you to do is just to take a moment before we go back to our crazy lives and to, in a sense, open that.